Spiked is free. We have no paywall. You don't have to subscribe to read our articles or listen to our podcasts. We want as many people as possible to have access to our content, and so we are determined to keep Spiked free. And we're only able to do that thanks to the generosity of our readers and our listeners. Your donations mean we can carry on doing what we're doing and provide an essential alternative voice on the big issues of the day. This is particularly important during the COVID crisis, in which Spiked has provided the space for lockdown sceptics, dissenting experts and others to say things that have become unsayable elsewhere. So thank you to everyone who donates to Spiked. If you don't yet donate, but you would like to, please consider doing so today. One-off donations are always hugely appreciated, but even better are regular monthly donations. Even £5 a month, less than the cost of a copy of The Guardian and a cappuccino, can make a huge difference to our work. So, to help keep Spiked free and thriving, go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. Now, on with the show. Ordinary working people, you speak to them on the doorstep, certainly in some of the hard-pressed communities, you know, they're worried about jobs, they're worried about wages, they're worried about their family. They want to talk about issues like immigration and law and order. They want to talk about the things that actually impact on them day to day. Those are the issues that... When they're raised on the doorstep, many labour activists will just stare down at the ground and shuffle their feet in embarrassment because they're not comfortable talking about those issues. And until they start focusing laser-like on the issues that matter to people, I think you know Labour's got no chance of, of winning again. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Paul Embury. Paul is a firefighter, a trade unionist and a writer. He has been a member of the Labour Party since 1994 and he's active in the Blue Labour tendency that tries to reconnect Labour to its traditional working class support base. Paul was a leading pro-Brexit voice during the EU referendum, making the left-wing case for leaving the EU. He is a writer for Unheard, and he is the author of the brilliant new book, Despised, Why the Modern Left Loathes the Working Class. So, Paul, I want to start at the beginning. Well, at the beginning of your book, your brilliant new book, Despised, Why the Modern Left Loathes the Working Class, which opens with an event that happened almost a year ago, which was the election of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister of the UK. And you make this very important point, which I think probably people don't dwell on enough, which is that after 10 years of Tory austerity, and despite the fact that the Tory party was being led by an Etonian fop who didn't really have much in common with ordinary people, and despite the fact that the left and much of the media had spent a year telling us that Boris and his party were a bunch of fascists, despite all of that, millions and millions of working class people, especially in the Red Wall areas, voted for Boris Johnson to be PM enthusiastically in vast numbers in an incredibly large act of democracy. And and you see that as incredibly telling, don't you, in relation to 
well, firstly, the success of the Conservative Party in that instance, but more importantly, the extent to which the left had lost the working class. Yes, and I think that that schism was on the cards for a long time. And I think that anybody who was seriously paying attention to what was going on inside our country wouldn't have been surprised by that election result. I certainly wasn't surprised by it, but I do know that lots of my colleagues on the left were pretty shocked by it because they were looking at the situation and thinking, you know, we've had a decade of Tory austerity and Boris Johnson is a clown and Labour is now a mass membership party and Jeremy Corbyn is playing to packed houses everywhere. And very, very few people foresaw exactly what happened. And I think the problem is that most of the modern left, certainly people inside the Labour Party, and obviously I speak as someone inside the Labour Party, just simply don't mix in those in those circles anymore and live lives and have interests and priorities that are completely distinct from the lives and interests and priorities of millions of people in those red wall seats. And this thing, as I say, the writing was on the wall. And I, I think that it predates Corbyn. I think anyone who thinks that, you know, Labour got hammered because of Jeremy Corbyn, that was certainly part of it, but it wasn't the whole story. I don't think Brexit was the, the whole story, although it was certainly damaging to have that second referendum policy for the Labour Party. I think that these problems have, have been coming down the track for, for years. And I think you can particularly pinpoint the first decade, really, of this century, I would say, where some of these kind of post-industrial areas, provincial Britain, particularly provincial England, coastal England, we're going through some real profound economic and social changes. We were seeing the impacts of globalization on these places. We were seeing the effect that rapid and large-scale movements of capital and labor were having. We were seeing deindustrialization, jobs being shipped abroad. We were seeing rapid, rapid demographic change. And these, you know, lots of people in these communities were just a bit uneasy about the whole thing. They were being told, well, this is to your benefit. This is the new global market. You know, this is culturally enriching. This is going to improve GDP. And most people thought, actually, this isn't really improving my my town, my community, and I don't like it. And, and you know, Labour just looked at those people with disdain. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying that those people have got valid concerns, we've got to listen to them, they just patronised them and lectured them, and they paid a heavy, heavy price, which, as I say to me, wasn't a surprise at all. Absolutely. I think it's really true that the kind of people who make up the modern left, including the Labour Party, don't tend to mix in those parts of the country, as, as you describe it, and are very unfamiliar with the people there and what they think and how they live and, and why they believe the things they believe. And you can see that in numerous different ways. I mean, the tendency for helicoptering in, you know, metropolitan politicians to represent certain parts of the country. The fact that so few MPs across the board now have any background in actual hard work or manufacturing or labour of any kind at all, and a dwindling number of working class representatives as well. But I wanted to press you on this question, because of course, as the title of your book suggests, the title is Despised. It's not only that the left fails to mix with these people or understand them, but it has come to actively loathe them. And we can see that in numerous different ways. I mean, one small example, but good example is the word gammon. I bristle every time I hear the word gammon, because to me, it just means pig. And it makes mm -hmm. me think the left are referring to 
I don't know, lower middle class or working class people essentially as pigs, as kind of a lower form of life. But there are numerous examples which we can dig down into of that kind of hatred that they often feel for that part of the country. So how do you describe the shift of the left, not simply from losing touch with its traditional support base, but coming to treat them with contempt? I think the Labour Party itself has gone through a process of pretty radical change in terms of its own demographic and its own ideology. I joined the party in 1994. I think the process was probably already underway by then. But even so, even back then, you know, it still had a very strong working class element within the party. I mean, when we'd be younger, we'd probably watch Labour Party conferences on television. There'd be all sorts of accents would come from the rostrum and there'd be trade unionists and people in constituency Labour parties who were genuinely working class in the sense that, you know, they'd had blue collar jobs and, you know, in some cases they've worked in industry, heavy industry and, and even MPs. I mean, you think of the parliamentary Labour Party in years gone by would have a number of big beasts who could say, you know, they had worked in the, the dockyards and in the mines and in the steelworks and that kind of thing. Now, of course, part of the change is due to the fact that deindustrialization means we don't really have those heavy industries anymore. But we do have call centres and we do have warehouses where people are on low wages and we do have a gig economy and, and transient employment, but very few of those people seem to come up through the Labour Party now. And the truth is the Labour Party has become this kind of bourgeois party of, of social activists and students and middle-class liberals living in the fashionable cities. And I always say, look, I, I don't, I've never argued that the Labour Party, all it should do is rely on its kind of old industrial working class base in order to win an election. The Labour Party, when it's been at its most successful, has been a coalition. It's been a coalition between those blue collar communities and the more kind of middle class liberal constituencies. I say it's the Labour Party at its most successful is, is mainly Hartlepool, but with a dash of Hampstead. I think the problem is that that coalition has become completely unbalanced over recent years where it's almost all now Hampstead and not enough Hartlepool and, and people in those working class constituencies in provincial Britain. Because I do think we need to sort of separate those red wall seats from the, the city seats. Of course, mm. you know, working class people live in the cities as, as well. And of course, you know, young people are working class people as well. But often when you go to those red wall seats, that's where you find views a little bit more socially conservative, a little bit less liberal, a little bit less in favour of the, the sort of cosmopolitan globalism that the Labour Party seems to embrace nowadays. And those are the people who have been abandoned. Those are the people who have been let down. And they look at the Labour Party now and think, actually, you don't much look like me. You don't much sound like me. Therefore, you know, I don't think you're best place to, to represent me. And, and there's, you know, there's a huge gulf between, between the party and them. And whether or not it can be closed remains to be seen. But uh, there's a huge effort to be made, that's for sure. One of the key points you make in the book is that much of the modern left and the traditional working class seem to inhabit different moral and political universes and have conflicting priorities. And I wanted to just to tease out some of the issues over which there is that kind of conflict these days. And I think an important one, which you write about is globalization and globalism. And it strikes me that one of the 
key flashpoints is often between the beneficiaries of globalization and the losers from globalization. So, uh, you know, the beneficiaries are, of course, firstly, the capitalist class who benefit enormously from the free movement of capital, but also a kind of a new middle class or a new upper middle class graduate classes who benefit from the free movement that is offered by a more cosmopolitan world, the opportunities to work elsewhere, the opportunities sometimes, you know, even to get more students in from overseas into their lecture halls or even au pairs on the cheap who will work for them in their lovely homes in London and elsewhere. So they can be seen as the beneficiaries, whereas you described very well, there are huge swathes of the country which were either left behind or ridden roughshod over by that same process. So to what extent do you think globalization and the changing nature of how capitalism works is a key flashpoint in this tension between the left and the people it used to represent? Well, it's it's another example, really, of the, the completely different perspectives of, if you like, the sort of middle class, liberal, pro-EU types and ordinary working class people in some of those hard press constituencies. You often hear this argument from the first group about, you know, free movement, for example, why on earth would we we want to give up our right to live, to love somebody, to go and to go and work in twenty seven other countries without any barriers? Now, if you were someone with those sorts of broad horizons, you had cash on the hip, you know, you'd been to university, you had the the means to be able to to travel and work abroad, you might well look at things in that way. I can understand that people do, but actually, on free movement, for example. For millions of working class people, it's a completely different sort of phenomenon. They they don't see the benefits of it because they they don't have the means to experience the benefits of it. If you're on low wages and living in you know a, a tough disadvantaged part of the the country, the idea that it's easy for you just to up sticks and go and live and work for a year in Tuscany or something is just completely absurd. And for them, the impacts of globalization and free movement mean something very different. It often means deindustrialization in their own town. It means that, you know, previously solid, stable industries have been shipped abroad. It means that there's a an explosion in some cases of cheap labour coming in, which in certain sectors, if they're in hospitality or retail or construction or something, can exert downward pressure on their own wages. And they think, well, actually, I'm not really seeing any benefits of this. I don't see any benefits financially. I don't really see any benefits culturally. My whole area is going through rapid change. And why are the politicians and the liberal establishment telling me that this is such a good thing and I should embrace it? And that, I think, is is a good example of the completely different perspectives and priorities of the two groups. I'm probably more favourable towards a liberal immigration policy than you are. But one of the things that has shocked me, and I think you, you've written about this process quite a lot, one of the things that has shocked me about the immigration discussion over the past few years has been the weaponization of it by the new elites, by sections of the new left, as a means of not simply virtue signalling, but demonstrating their moral and political authority over the rest of the country, who are presumed to be racist if they have any criticisms or questions about immigration whatsoever. So the extent to which 
people felt that such a crucial issue as immigration had been removed from the democratic sphere and turned into something that would be imposed on them whether they liked it or not, with no serious discussion and the shutting down of any voice which raised criticisms. I think that's one of the reasons why immigration also became an incredibly flashpoint issue. It's not because, as certain guardianistas would have us believe, that there are swarms and swarms of racist people in the North and in Wales and in Essex. It's more because that became a very real example to people of the extent to which their communities and their lives had been taken out of their control. Yeah, and I I think that most people in this country are pro-immigration. I'm certainly pro-immigration. I think that it's brought benefits to, to this country. But there's a difference, obviously, between being pro-immigration and being pro-completely open borders and being, if you like, pro-mass and, and unregulated immigration. And I, I remember watching in the EU debate, the referendum debate, I think it was Hillary Benn, who was obviously part of the Remain campaign, being interviewed over the question of free movement and effectively just saying, look, there's nothing we can do about it. We're in, you know, we're in the EU. Yes, we understand that working class communities have an issue with free movement, but there's nothing we can do. And I, you know, you can imagine people sitting there watching that thinking, well, what on earth is the point then? Are we a democracy or not? If we've got our politicians sitting here telling us there is absolutely nothing we can do to regulate the labour supply, then that's not a club I particularly want to, to be part of. And the interesting thing I think about the left is that that kind of pro-free movement slash open borders position was always, until fairly recently, pretty much a fringe position on the left. And the mainstream position is, look, actually, we regulate the labour supply because, you know, the labour supply is a market dynamic. And like all market dynamics, we need to have control over it, the better to be able to plan around things like jobs and welfare and housing and that kind of thing. And, and that was always the mainstream view within Labour and the, and the trade unions, actually. Now, if you articulate that position within the Labour movement, as I know from experience, you know, you're just labelled a, a bigger and a xenophobe. And, and that seems to me to have, have changed very, very quickly. And there are very serious and strong arguments against open borders from a left position. You know, the, the, the way in which, for example, open borders are a boss's dream, giving them the opportunity to shunt workers in low-wage economies across to high-wage economies in an attempt to, to save on labour costs. It's what I heard someone once describe as a form of outsourcing in reverse, where once upon a time, companies might have thought it necessary to kind of transfer to Malaysia or something in order to save on labour costs. With stuff like free movement, they can just kind of stay put and get cheap labour in from Eastern Europe and places like that and save in that way. And the truth is, I think we have very sadly almost poisoned the debate around immigration because I think we were going in the right direction. We weren't going through some of the, the divisive battles on immigration that perhaps we saw in the 60s and 70s in this country. But unfortunately, because the establishment in this country decided to say, look, you know, we want to defend free movement. We think it's right. Everybody should be pro-immigration. The left in particular were vehemently pro-free movement. I think that that abused people's faith. And what was an issue that had largely been put to bed in many places suddenly became a real running sore again. And it became a real running sore because the politicians and the liberal establishment just uh, took people for granted on it. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that people recognised, that voters recognised, because, you know, working class voters 
are not stupid as we are, are often told they are. I think one thing that they recognized was the extent to which the question of immigration had become bound up with the ideology of post borders. And in your book, you make the case for the nation state and you make the case for reversing or undoing globalization and going back to a system of national democracies, which is a view I very much share. And I think what a lot of people recognized is the erasure of borders, this this idea that we should be a post-borders world, you know, this the, the mantra of borders equals death, which you'd often see on, on lefty protests. I think they recognized that that was an assault on nationhood and the thing that nationhood embodies, which is democracy, national democracy, the right of a national people to determine what happens in their country. So one of the things that strikes me about how topsy-turvy politics has become is that you have these left-wingers, including in the Labour Party and outside of the Labour Party, who imagine that they are super progressive and super enlightened because they want to scrub out borders. Whereas it strikes me that very often the pushback against that, the resistance to that globalizing dynamic, seems to me to be more properly progressive in the old-fashioned sense of that word, in the sense that this wasn't a democratic act by millions of people to try to protect the idea of borders and the thing that exists within borders, which is democracy. And what I try to point out in the book is that actually from a left perspective, the nation state should be seen as a force for good instead of, you know, so many people on the left trying to dismantle borders and erase the nation state. Actually, it stands as a force for good for what people on the left should want to try to, to achieve. I mean, it is the best form of government ever invented at its upper level, at its upper limit, in my opinion, that, you know, when you try to go beyond the nation state into supranational arrangements, such as the EU, then there's much less fondness for that kind of construct amongst ordinary people. It's a single political and, and economic and often cultural unit in which people are much more prepared to be generous to other people within that particular unit. Uh, it's often built around historical ties in terms of language and custom and history and religion and social mores, etc. And, you know, there's one particular group of people who, who would want to see the nation state erased, and that's, that's the people who run the global corporations and the people who think that borders uh, are a roadblock to their own kind of hegemony. They want to have access all areas. They want to be able to have the ability to move their capital around the world freely and to be able to, in doing so, put pressure on national governments by saying, look, if you don't give us what we want inside your country in terms of low taxes, in terms of low regulation, then we'll just up sticks and, and go somewhere else. Having the ability to to do that for the global corporations undermines democracy, it undermines the, the vote, and it undermines, in my view, so many of the things that the, the left are, are trying to achieve. And I think a group of nation states actually working together to challenge some of the kind of globalization agenda, which obviously is neoliberal in nature, and in my view, has, has helped to increase the gap between rich and poor, has helped to, to concentrate vast sums of wealth in fewer and fewer hands. If you're going to challenge that, I think, you know, individual nation states working to, together present the best opportunity to be able to do that. So what I argue in the book is that actually we need to harness the power of the nation state to capture in order to challenge a globalist agenda, which has not worked for ordinary people, has made people poorer, has in many respects exploited people in some of the developing countries and you know none of this stuff 
as far as I'm concerned, is something that the left should be comfortable with. But until they embrace the nation state as a force for good, I think they're going to keep making these errors. And it's so true that the left should and used to look upon the nation as a force for good. And if you think back to the left in the 50s and 60s and 70s, it would often support national liberation struggles, the efforts by post-colonial peoples to make their own nation state, their own independent nation state. And of course, lots of the modern world was born precisely by a struggle of people to define a nation and to ensure that they had democratic rights within that nation. I mean, if you read the writings of the Scottish-Irish socialist James Connolly, it's very clear that if a nation doesn't control its own borders, then it's not a free country. And when you then fast forward a 100 years and have lefties on the street saying borders equals death, you know that something has gone catastrophically wrong with the left's understanding of how democracy works and why nations can be a force for good, even if extreme nationalism, of course, can often be a force for ill. But in relation to that, I wanted to just get a couple of your thoughts on the Corbynism movement, which now seems to be fading to a certain extent. But it's very interesting because what we have there essentially were a a group of largely middle class, even upper middle class radicals who would often talk in the language of Marx and Engels and talk about revolution and overthrowing the powers that be and so on. But what was really striking was that as soon as there was an actual revolt, a revolt via the ballot box by vast numbers of ordinary people against neoliberalism, against globalization, and against the dire consequences of that form of capitalism. As soon as that happened, they kind of lost their nerve and eventually sided, essentially, with the neoliberal elites against the vote for Brexit and against ordinary people who were calling into question the right of the EU to govern our lives in the way that it was doing. So how would you explain the way in which Corbynism in particular went from speaking in the language of revolution to really siding with the authorities against ordinary voters? No one will convince me that the the way the left handled the whole Brexit question was anything other than a spectacular blunder from start to finish. The left, in my view, should have should have argued for Brexit from the outset, not just because the EU stands for many things that are inimical to the to the interests and the aspirations of, of the left. Obviously, we know it's an institution that is is pro neoliberalism, pro privatization, etc., pro austerity, anti democratic, explicit anti-socialist. So in my view, the vast majority of the left called it wrong in terms of arguing for Remain. But once the result was over, at the very least, they should have said, okay, the people have spoken. We've got our decision. We have to embrace it and we have to move on. And the way that so many parts of the left, Labour MPs and trade union leaders and other people across the left just came together and did everything they could to try to subvert that vote, was in many respects suicidal and, you know, had a, had an impact in terms of Labour Party massacre in December 2019. And that's something that the Labour Party is going to take a long time to recover from. Because, what you know, what you had here, in my view, with Brexit was a genuine democratic revolt. You had many people who voted for the first time who were given a weapon with which to to hit back uh, the political elite, people who they believed were responsible for their predicament and ignored them and sneered at them 
neglected them over over so many years. And when that happened, the left who claimed to represent working class people, because, uh, you know, I, I think it was a, a working class revolt. Uh, not every working class people voted Brexit, of course, but nonetheless, two thirds of the, the C2DEs voted for, for Brexit. The further you went down the income scale, the more likely it was that people voted for Brexit. Some of the most disadvantaged areas of the, of the UK, particularly England, returned some of the, the highest Brexit votes. And these were the people that the left and the Labour Party should be speaking for. And when they spoke, they should have said, okay, we're, we're on board. We're going to, we're going to see this through with you. But the way in which they connived to try to stop that, I think was, was fundamentally wrong in principle and suicidal as a, as a tactic. And I think it's going to take some time for, if at all, for the left to recover in some of those communities. Following on from that, I wanted to ask you about the role that the accusation of racism now plays. Because, of course, one of the, I mean, I I agree with you, the left's blunders in relation to Brexit have been catastrophic. And I, I agree they will take a long time to recover from. But one of the worst ones, I think, was this presumption, which was either implicit or often explicit, that anyone who voted for Brexit did so for xenophobic reasons. Anyone who voted to end free movement clearly hates foreigners and probably hates black people and Asian people in particular, none of which is ever backed up by facts, none of which is ever demonstrated in, in any convincing way. And it's really interesting because very often, in- increasingly what's happening is anyone who talks at all about working class concerns runs the risk of being called racist. It's become this almost knee-jerk response to anyone who says, let's listen to working class communities, or in your case, and you, you write about this in your book, anyone who uses the phrase traditional working class, and, and you describe in your book how you use that phrase on Twitter, and Ash Saka, the left-wing journalist, responded essentially by calling you a racist, which she's also done with me. I'm starting to wonder if Ash has ever met someone from a working class background who she didn't think was racist. But it's become a mechanism, I think, through which certain views are demonized, certain people are demonized and dehumanized. And there's a great irony there, because of course, racism used to be the means through which we would dehumanize sections of society. And now this accusation of racism wielded promiscuously by the left has become a way of dehumanising entire parts of the country. It's one of these words that have, have been the subject of the, the sort of worst kind of word inflation. You know, when you, you look at how often and ubiquitously it's used now and how casually it's used now, along with words like fascist and hate and far right and, and that sort of thing. And it just completely devalues the term when people throw these terms around so casually. And, and I, I think the danger actually is words like that you should use sparingly. When you're accusing people of being any of those things, you should do it sparingly and only when you've got your, your facts right. Because the problem is if you just tarnish all opponents with, with those sorts of labels, then the real racists and the real fascists who, who are out there will get away with it and they won't be identified because they just say, well, they call all of us racist, so I'm no more racist than you, mate. So again, as a, as a tactic, I just think it's disastrous. And it sadly explains how so much of 
today's left has become really authoritarian in nature and largely responsible for, for driving this culture war and the, the suffocating atmosphere which we see, which just seeks to, to silence or cancel anyone who, who doesn't subscribe to their ideology. And I think the frightening thing is, as I say in the book, once upon a time in political debate, if somebody disagreed with you, they would say, look, I disagree with you. More often now, you hear the phrase, you mustn't say that. And, you know, almost as if some debates are, are completely off limits or, you know, the other thing that people say is that's offensive, almost as if the debate should go no further at that point. The minute someone has said, I'm offended by that, that's like a clincher in debate for them. And, you know, we need to push back against this stuff. The, the idea that just because you have expressed a genuinely held belief that someone should take offence at that and that you should be forced to pipe down, I think is is chilling. And we shouldn't allow people to to get away with, with attempting to silence people like that. I, I, I don't argue, as I say in the book, I don't argue that, you know, you should go out of your way to gratuitously hurt people's feelings or, or upset people for absolutely no reason. But if, if you've expressed a genuinely held view and someone has taken offence at that, then the problem lies with the person taking the offence and not with the person who's giving the opinion. And I, I think the problem, the really frustrating thing, is the politicians are useless at challenging this stuff. They're all absolutely petrified of putting their head above the parapet because they think it's going to be shot off and they think they're going to themselves be demonised as, as bigots, etc. Which is, you know, I, I don't know. I think a lot of people probably thought that Boris Johnson's government would ride to the rescue on some of this woke stuff and start pushing back against some of this woke stuff. I don't see that at all, actually. I, I think there's a huge amount of cowardice that runs through mainstream politics with, with a, a failure of politicians to stand up. And I, I think it needs a concerted effort among wider society to say, look, these people are trying to shut down debate. They've got away with it so far because we've been too scared to stand up to them and no more. You know, we're not going to let these people get away with it anymore. That's that's how we need to challenge them. I want to ask you specifically about the religion of liberal wokedom, as you describe it in your book. <laughs> and you correctly point out in your book that the upper echelons of the Tory party buy into this as much as anyone else. And I think that will prove to be correct over the coming years. But firstly, in relation to the racism slash working class question, I think one of the things you also write about in your book is identity politics and the role it plays in contemporary political life. Because one of the frustrating things for those of us who criticise identity politics, of course, is that we are often accused of not caring about minority groups and the specific issues and problems that minority groups might face, which is obviously completely untrue. What we're talking about and what you talk about in the book is the way in which the obsession with identity, the obsession with your racial category or your sexual category or your gender identity or whatever else it might be, the way in which that grates against the possibility of social solidarity and, and the possibility, in fact, of class solidarity. And it strikes me that the current fad of intersectionality, it looks to me like a new form of divide and rule, except it's stated in more politically correct terms, because what it essentially says is, you know, you can't really have a, a broad class because, you know, that might contain black women and black women have very different interests to white men. Whereas a traditional understanding of the importance of left-wing politics, as far as I can see it, was precisely that you could overcome those minor differences in the pursuit of a broader 
common interest and a broader class interest. So that's another thing I find very striking about contemporary life. Identity politics looks to me like a a very good friend of neoliberalism in the sense that it plays this role of dividing ordinary people. Is that how you see it? It does exactly that. And I think that the the whole thing is a divisive viper's nest, really, which has set working class back a long way. And you know, the, I just think the idea that you focus so much on dividing people up on the basis of their kind of separateness, their discrete identities, and to emphasize the differences rather than try to, to overcome them and actually to promote those identities as virtuous in their own right, and that people are thereby worthy of special treatment for no other reason that they hold those identities, seems to me actually not to reflect at all, you know, the, the laudable campaigns of years gone by to try to overcome prejudice where, you know, you try to, to build commonality between people and you try to look at and exploit the things that you, you held in common in order to promote unity between people. You know, I'm a great believer in, in Martin Luther King's people shouldn't be judged by the color of their skin, but by the, the content of their, their character. And of course, it, and the whole thing's got a very kind of middle class whiff about it because working class people are worried about things like jobs and housing and wages and, and that kind of thing. But if you, if you don't necessarily have those pressing concerns in the same way because you come from a bit more of a fortunate station in life, then perhaps you can afford to concentrate on some of these more obscure battles around identity. But all it does, frankly, as far as I can see, is fragment the working class and undermine the the opportunity for, for the working class as a whole to be able to advance their interests on the important things that matter to them, as I say, you know, jobs and wages, employment and, and housing and that kind of thing. So it's one of these things that needs to be ditched. I mean, there's no other way to see. Yes, we absolutely need to be resolute in challenging prejudice and working together to try to build as much unity as possible across the class. But it can't be done, as far as I can see, on on just constantly dividing people on the basis of their identity and emphasising separateness and difference. I don't think that helps at all. One of the things that's worried me over the past couple of months in particular has been almost an effort to redefine the working class out of existence. And I was actually most struck with this after the election in the US, in fact, where there was a lot of commentary on essentially people saying, look, we're sick and tired of you guys talking about the white working class. We we don't want to hear about them anymore. And any proposal of economic populism was seen as, by definition, as a racist idea. And we've seen similar developments in the UK over the past year since Boris won the election. This notion that if someone like you, for example, talks about the traditional working class, which is not talking about the white working class, because as you and and the rest of us recognize, the working class is made up of people from all sorts of backgrounds. Everyone who has ever been a member of the working class or knows working class people will be well aware of that fact. But in a sense, we're reaching the nadir of identity politics, where there is this attempt to say, well, the real working class are the kind of urban graduates in London and other metropolitan cities who have very different views to, you know, old men in pubs in the north of England. And now that, as you say in your book, technically speaking, that's true. It is true that the working class is a diverse group of people and there is a new emerging working class, which is more urban-based, probably has slightly woker views than you and me and so on and so forth. But 
it, it seems to me that the problem with this argument is that the ideology that's pushing it is essentially an attempt to silence the supposedly problematic working classes who vote for Brexit and who don't subscribe to woke ideology and so on. It's an attempt to sideline them and to elevate what is seen as the more honourable, decent section of the working class. It's completely opportunist and it's completely disingenuous. It's it's a way of saying, look, the, work, the, the working class are not quite the way we would like them to be. Uh, yeah. So let, let's redefine it in our own terms. Let's sort of, let's pretend that the working class is this group of people and not quite that group of people because, you know, that, that particular group of people uh, undermine what it is that we're, we're trying to achieve. Well, you know, and it's dishonest because, as you say yourself, I, I make clear in my book that I don't believe the working class in this country just constitutes people living in post-industrial England, for example, who happen to be white and, you know, who may have worked in blue-collar industries. I mean, the, the, the working class does have an element of it that is city-based, that is more liberal and cosmopolitan in its outlook, and in many cases may be suffering the same stresses in terms of finances and, and trying to find a job, etc. And I make very clear in the book that, you know, we have to try to build the biggest unity amongst the, the, the working class, but it strikes me that that same approach isn't taken by people on the other side of the argument. They just focus incessantly on the element of the working class, which is reflective of their own particular views, and then just try to dismiss everybody else or pretend that they're, they're, you know, they're not working class in some way. And on the, I mean, the point that you raised about the traditional working class and how people just assume parts on the left just assume that when you say that, that you're talking about the, the white working class, I think actually, that kind of reaction just betrays their own prejudice. Because when, you know, when I use the term traditional working class, I'm talking not just about white people. I'm talking about the Windrush generation. I'm talking about, you know, the, the black man who came over with the Windrush generation and, and worked on London's transport system. Or I'm talking about the Asian family who came over and live in a northern mill town and have been there since the 1950s or, or 60s. So when people argue that to say traditional working class is to, is to mean white, I mean, they're actually saying that black and Asian people who have been here for 50 or 60 years in some cases don't qualify for being part of our traditional working class. I think of my own in-laws who came here from Calcutta in the 1960s. My late father-in-law, who was a sheet metal worker, who I'm pretty sure would have regarded himself proudly as, as part of Britain's traditional working class. Are they saying that he shouldn't be considered part of, of the traditional working class? And again, it's a follow-on from the, from the identity politics stuff where so many people in their own minds on the left just divide people up on the basis of, of identity, and it leads them to, to these sorts of conclusions, and they've got it fundamentally wrong in my view. Even the term white working classes is, is ridiculous in many ways because there's differences even there. My parents are working class immigrants from Ireland. They are white, but they are also newcomers to this country, relatively speaking. And I think one of the most frustrating things that I find when people say to someone like you, you know, don't you know that there are more than white people in the working classes? I mean, people are well aware of this. My dad worked in the building industry all his life and he worked with predominantly Irish people, but also black people, and more recently, Eastern Europeans, especially Romanians and Albanians. And the idea that those kinds of people don't understand what the working class is, is a complete joke. I mean, they have a far keener understanding of it than some of those commentators and some of those activists around the Labour Party.
I wanted to move on to the religion of liberal wokedom, which is a very nice phrase. And I think I know what you're talking about. It's something that you and I comment on quite a lot. But could you just describe for our listeners how you understand wokeness or or this religion of liberal wokedom, what, what it means to you? Wokeness for me is about people who are very pretentious about certain social causes, but that's also coupled with a real deep intolerance towards people who might disagree. I think it's about people trying to signal their virtue by being seen to to express a particular fashionable moral or political opinion or to denounce someone for expressing an unfashionable political or moral opinion. And they often do this by spreading a hashtag or wearing a bracelet and this kind of stuff, you know, what I refer to in the book as slacktivism or woke slacktivism. And, you know, many of these people in my experience have, have got no real interest or involvement in grassroots political organizing or campaigning they they think that actually campaigning can be done simply by sitting behind a keyboard and sharing a meme or something and again it's got a middle class whiff about the whole thing it seems to me to be largely kind of middle class graduate types who, who engage in that sort of stuff and i don't think it's a substitute at all for the hard yards of political campaigning and i made the point recently that Marcus Rashford has come in for a lot of stick because of, of the various campaigns that he's run about school meals, etc. And I think actually he should be applauded because although he's been criticised for, for being woke and virtue signaling, I don't think he has actually. I think what he's done is he's seen what he considers to be an injustice and he's gone about you know politically lobbying, speaking to politicians, campaigning and doing what he can to raise interest in it. And I have time for people like that. I have very little time for people who think that, you know, sitting on your iPhone and just tapping furiously in an attempt to gain some social kudos by being seen to be woke, that doesn't impress me at all. And do you think this represents a broader shift from a left that was concerned with tangible problems like the economy, jobs, housing, people's living conditions, the right of people to be wealthier and more comfortable, those kinds of real tangible issues which motivated the left for a very long time towards less tangible issues like cultural attitudes, what you say about trans people, whether you speak the right language on every single issue. I mean, in your book, there's a very interesting part where you talk about how a lot of the rot of contemporary left politics set in from the 60s onwards when there was this kind of shift towards a new left and it tended to leave working class people behind because they didn't share its outlook. So in terms of the religion of liberal wokedom and the rise of that kind of woke slacktivism, do you think it speaks to a left that has moved itself away from bothering with such trifling issues as where people live and how much they get paid and how much power they have in the workplace towards issues of do you use the right language in terms of race are you politically correct on trans politics do you think there's been that kind of bigger shift i do and i think the two go hand in hand i think that that shift has occurred because the left itself has fundamentally changed in nature and because the i mean if you look at the labor party now the Labour Party is far more middle class and urban based and, and liberal and cosmopolitan than it ever was. And because of that, it's adopted a different agenda to the traditional agenda, which mattered to working people in terms of jobs and housing and wages and, and that kind of thing. Now, I'm not saying they don't 
discuss those things. They do, and arguably a bit more so when when Corbyn took over. But what they also do is they spend an obsessive, and I see this because I'm a, I'm a foot soldier on the left, and they spend an obsessive amount of time discussing issues that for the vast majority of working class people are not particularly important. So, you know, ordinary working people, you speak to them on the doorstep, certainly in some of the hard press communities, you know, they're worried about jobs, they're worried about wages, they're worried about their family. They want to talk about issues like immigration and law and order. They want to talk about the things that actually impact on them day to day. And they would want a Labour Party that claims to speak for them to put those issues front and centre. But what the Labour Party does is it spends a completely disproportionate amount of time talking about things like LGBT rights, talking about things like gender identity, or even things like climate change and and migrant rights. Now, as I've always said, I'm not suggesting for a second that those issues shouldn't be discussed. Of course, you know, those issues should be discussed by any mainstream political party. But the amount of time Labour activists spend on them, to me, seems to be in inverse proportion to the amount of time that that people in working class communities spend on them. And the kind of issues that I listed that working class people wanted to talk about, things like law and order and immigration, etc. As I say in the book, those are the issues that when they're raised on the doorstep, many Labour activists will just stare down at the ground and shuffle their feet in embarrassment because they're not comfortable talking about those issues. They're much more comfortable talking about things like LGBT rights and and climate change and so on. And until there's a major recalibration in language and emphasis on the left and and they start focusing laser-like on the issues that matter to people, I think you know Labour's got no chance of, of winning again. The disproportionate focus of sections of the left on on those issues, which most people consider to be fairly minor. Now, anyone who says that runs the risk of being told that I've been told this myself. Oh, you think all working class people are homophobic and don't care about gay rights? I don't think that at all. I think the opposite. In fact, I think there's a huge amount of tolerance in working class communities and the rest of the country for gay relationships, for trans people, for all those forms of living. I think there's a wide spread acceptance of that and an acceptance of the importance that people can live their lives as they choose with no discrimination, no punishment no harassment at work and so on. I think that's a a view that's widely held. But it it strikes me that one of the important points about the disproportionate focus on these issues by sections of the left is that in a way they've become not simply things that the left can obsess about because they feel more comfortable talking about those things rather than about how to get jobs for people who don't have them, but also because they've become almost useful tools for pushing back against and and correcting the supposed wrong thing of vast swathes of the country. So if you look at something like the politics of gender fluidity, for example, what I find really interesting about that is not simply about saying that trans people should have the same rights as everyone else, which I completely agree with. It's also about saying there's a problem if you use terms like mother and father. There's a problem if you bring your son up as a boy, even if he displays certain feminine traits at an early age. And it so strikes me that they've become means through which, quite opportunistically, sections of the left are almost chipping away at some of the things you write about in the book, which is the traditional convictions and the traditional beliefs of a majority of people in the country. The, the big problem for the left is that it's all very well kind of trying to force this new way of thinking 
on people. But if you haven't actually won hearts and minds, then it becomes meaningless because, as we've seen, you know, in Britain and to a certain degree in America, that kind of wokeness doesn't penetrate the ballot box. People hit back at the establishment over Brexit. In America, the Rust Belt hit back at the establishment when they elected Trump. And it's all very well kind of peddling this stuff, but ultimately, People can fight back against it through the ballot box and let you know what they think if you if you haven't won them won them over to it. And you know, I, I believe what you said. Actually, the vast majority of people in this country are, are tolerant. I think we've made huge progress on things like gay rights, for example. I mean, once upon a time, people were persecuted because they were gay. Thank God we've moved on from those days where where people don't suffer the kind of abuses. Yeah, it still happens, of course, but by and large, we've we've eradicated so much of, of that kind of stuff. Thank God. But the idea that you know people who still hold some traditional, dare we say, socially conservative views on some things shouldn't be allowed to express them or should be denounced if they do, strikes me as the very opposite of tolerance, actually. I mean, my, my friend Morris Glasman says regularly, you know, there's none so intolerant as those who preach tolerance <laughs> and none so exclusionary as those who promote inclusiveness. And I think it's very true. And, you know, you, you kind of sit all the time. I sit all the time on the left where you, you argue particular opinions and people's chins hit the floor because they can't believe that someone on the, the left is arguing such a thing. A good example, which I referred to in the book is the question of family. Now, you know, every study virtually that's ever been carried out shows that children brought up in a stable home with two parents have better outcomes generally than kids who are brought up with one parent. And, you know, children who come from broken homes are more likely to turn to, to drugs and be in trouble at school, etc. But there are so many people on the left who simply don't want to have that debate. They try to shut you down because they say you're stigmatizing single parents and families come in all shapes and sizes and those sorts of cliches. Now, I don't see why, as, as a left, you should turn away from kids who are suffering simply because it's, it's politically incorrect to raise the issue. I think that a left should be confident about saying, look, you know, we believe that kids raised in a stable home with two parents generally do better than those who are not. So therefore, you know, of course, we accept we can't force people to stay together, but we want our society where possible to try to promote the out outcome and achieve it for as many kids as, as possible. And that doesn't mean that you're stigmatizing single parents and lots of single parents do a fantastic job and we should give them whatever help we can. But to even raise that as a question on the left is like a red rag to a ball. And I just kind of think if you can't even raise simple questions like this about children's upbringing, then frankly, what are we what are we in business for? Uh, absolutely, and as you say, it's actually bizarre that you can't talk about these things because we are talking here about sections of society who face great difficulties. I mean, there are many single parent families who do a very good job, but it's unquestionable that being a single parent is very difficult and that it has sometimes detrimental impact on the next generation if they don't have a father figure or a mother figure or, you know, what most of us would recognize as a very positive balancing influence in their lives. And I often think that in relation to something like the knife crime crisis in London, which the left is incredibly reluctant to talk about, or, or it talks about it in incredibly narrow health terms, which strikes me also as an abandonment of fairly vulnerable sections of our community who, for various reasons, are falling down the spiral of gang behavior and crime and so on. But I wanted to 
just come back just just to bring the conversation to a conclusion i want to come back to something you mentioned there about wokeness not doing well at the ballot box which i think is is a really important point and i think the most remarkable event of this year and possibly of the past four or five years was donald trump getting 73 million votes in the presidential election in November, which tells me there are tens of millions of people who are still incredibly dissatisfied with the status quo ante, incredibly dissatisfied with establishment politics, technocracy, and so on. And of course, we saw a similar thing here when the Red Wall revolted against Labour and and voted for Boris last year. But I wanted to put it to you that even though wokeness doesn't do well at the ballot box, we always seem to end up with it anyway. And I think that's one of the things that people like you and me are going to have to have a reckoning with, because it strikes me that the people who voted for Boris in December last year were not particularly woke, were not right on on all the issues you're supposed to be right on about, probably were pro-Brexit, concerned about immigration and all those things that you discuss in detail in your book. And yet we're ending up with an administration which seems to be going further down the woke route, which was very, very cowardly in relation to the Black Lives Matter protests in terms of defending statues, for example, or defending British history or defending those kinds of traditions, even though polls found that most people around the country were disturbed by the images of statues being torn down. So how would you explain this disconnect, not simply between the left and ordinary working class voters, but between the establishment and ordinary working class voters? And and what do you think can be done to bridge that gap? Well, I wrote a piece about this this morning, actually. I mean, there's there's an awful lot of personal cowardice around at the top of politics with politicians frightened to be the first person to, to say, actually, we need to push back against this nonsense. So I'm convinced, actually, we can't put faith in, in politicians to address this. We need a, a united front across wider society. And I think the interesting thing is... Actually, when you when you speak to politicians and others in senior positions, often they will say, well, of course, some of this stuff is absolutely mad. But, you know, what they say privately is often different to what they say publicly. And it's there's a similar thing goes on with the, the whole kind of gender self-identification issue. I mean, I, I speak to numerous people in the trade union movement who will say to me under their breath, well, of course, it's completely insane. We all know that. But, you know, they're frightened to, to say it publicly because because they think the sky is going to fall in on them. So there, there is absolutely a disconnect between you know, what, what people in positions of authority or with some influence are prepared to say publicly and what they're prepared to say privately. And, and I, you know, I, I can't think that that boils down to much more than personal cowardice. And you, know, you use the example of statues, which is a good one. I mean, the, the, there was the recent one, the, the, the chap who was chairman of the Football Association, who you know, made a simple slip in a meeting with politicians you know he comes from a particular generation ironically he was he was talking about the need to overcome discrimination in football and and said something that nowadays you know is is deemed to be offensive even though he clearly did not mean any offense by it and in a in a sensible society he would have earned at most a mild rebuke but of course you know it's not a simple society anymore if you're in a position of authority even with the the merest 
slip, even if you didn't particularly intend to upset anybody. Of course, people want your head on a platter and your, your reputation is destroyed. So as I say in the book, there needs to be a concerted pushback against this thing. And we need to, to try to unite all of the people in society and the few in any positions of authority who might be prepared to, to speak out against it to do it. Because, you know, what you said is absolutely right. No matter how people vote at the ballot box, senior politicians are simply not brave enough to do the job for us. So it's like many things in life, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fall to the people to do it. Paul Embry, thank you very much. Thanks, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.